It is always an illusion to think that better marketing can solve spiritual problems. Better marketing is never an answer to a genuine spiritual problem. Deeper substance is the answer. From the Jewish Founders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I am Andres Pocoini. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and in the Jewish community. Along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, we're speaking with Rabbi Shai Held. Rabbi Held is a theologian, a scholar, and an educator. He is the president, dean, and chair in Jewish thought at Adar, where he also directs the Center for Jewish Leadership and Ideas. Previously, he served for six years as scholar-in-residence at Keilat Hadar in New York City and taught both theology and halakha at the Jewish Theological Seminary. He also served as director of education at Harvard Hillel, and in 2011, he was the recipient of the prestigious Covenant Award for Excellence in Jewish Education. He holds a doctorate in religion from Harvard and has been named multiple times to Newsweek's list of the 50 most influential rabbis in America. This episode is a little different than our usual ones because it is adapted from a public conversation that Shai and I had in September for Aspire, JFN's first annual pre-holiday gathering. In case you're curious to see how we look, Check out the video version on JFN's YouTube channel or on our JFN COVID-19 response resource hub. We spoke in that conversation about the spiritual questions and needs that COVID is unleashing and how the Jewish community must respond. In particular, we shared a concern about the lack of support for today's Jewish thinkers who are too often consumed by the pressure to fundraise and maintain their organizations. That results in an impoverishment in the quality of Jewish life, and we also agreed in the need for more substantive adult Jewish learning opportunities. Take a listen. Shai is one of the, I would say, one of the clearest minds in terms of what is happening to Judaism and to Jewish spiritual dimensions in the 21st century. And the idea for this conversation is really to have a, a fireside chat, two concerned Jews talking about what the future may bring, not in terms of organizational structure, not in terms of funding, but in terms of spiritual and, and meaning dimensions of Judaism. So do you agree with me, Shai, that COVID is going to produce spiritual renewal, a spiritual reckoning of some sort? Um, well, first of all, thank you, Andres, for having me, and thank you to JFN and to all of you. So I think that my most honest answer is that I have a slightly different response now than I would have had if we had been talking six weeks ago. I am totally convinced that COVID ought to have a certain kind of impact on the Jewish community, that it ought to lead us to have certain kind of conversations and certain kinds of reckonings. I am less sure than I was six weeks ago that it will happen, certainly societally. I think there's really two conversations we could have, right? One is about the reckoning within the Jewish community, and the other is about the reckonings in American society. I'm much less confident about the latter than I was six weeks ago. I'm more hopeful about the former, about reckonings within the Jewish community. So here's what bothers me, or what worries me. And we talked about it a lot. 
after every pandemic, there is enormous spiritual change. Like after the Black Death, the Renaissance came. After Asia uh, adopted Buddhism, after a smallpox epidemic in the seventh century, there is going to be a lot of existential questions. And I fear that our community is not really dealing with those. I mean, again, we're dealing with technical issues, but are we ready for people asking difficult questions about God, about human nature, about spiritual quests, etc.? Well, I think if I were to answer that question in a blunt, but not necessarily all that gentle way, I think what I might say is that I often fear that the people whose learning is deep enough don't want to have those conversations, and the people who want to have those conversations don't have a deep enough learning. In other words, we can have those conversations, but if we want to really ground those conversations in the depths of the Jewish tradition, in Jewish sources, in moving beyond kind of cliched applications of the Jewish tradition, we have a lot of work to do. Frankly, we have to invest in having the kinds of leaders, spiritual leaders, who are capable of guiding those conversations. I do think it is true. I will tell you that just talking to people in courses and lectures on Zoom, the hunger is palpable. People want to talk about real things. I think that that's been true to a greater extent since Trump was elected, but all the more so, honestly, since COVID. People want to talk about why am I here? What can I still do with the time that I have here? One of the topics I think is really important to people and that I think has major ethical implications is what are the implications of how vulnerable I've been reminded that I am, right? And vulnerability, I would say, is a bit of a double-edged sword. Vulnerability can lead us to kind of shut ourselves in, close ranks around only those we already care about, or vulnerability can actually be a path to a kind of broader human solidarity. I, I, I would say that to me, one of the central ethical and you could say even political questions of our time is what are we gonna choose to learn from our brush with this reminder of vulnerability? Are we gonna allow it to teach us a broader sense of solidarity to restore some of the social bonds that have been so frayed in our society? Or is it gonna cause us to close off even more fiercely than we already are in our society? And the evidence, I think there's evidence in both directions, frankly. And you mentioned something really interesting is that we, we're not equipped to have those conversations. You know, I think that um, I feel that, first of all, that these conversations are long overdue even before COVID. Like we don't have an updated theological and philosophical framework. We still use the same ideologies that are product of the 19th century. In other words, if you look at the Jewish world today, the denominations that we have, the ideologies that we have, you know, reform, conservative, orthodoxy, they're all products of the 19th century. And we haven't been creative enough in creating new ideologies and new theologies. And now on top of that, we have COVID. We, we needed an update. We needed, a, you know, before COVID. And this makes it very, very urgent, I think. Right. Well, you know, w one of my favorite phrases in the Jewish tradition is a phrase that appears in the Zohar. The phrase is dvarim atikin chadetin, old new things. We need old new things. That is to say, we need new formulations of old ideas. I'm not sure. I don't love, honestly, the language of creating new theologies. I think it's about uncovering old ones in many ways. That's just my own way of relating to the tradition, which may be semantic and may not be. I'm not sure. Um, look, I think we live in a time and have for quite a while now, for at least a couple of generations, an atheological time in the Jewish community, a time when the conversations about God are fairly superficial, if they're had at all. And 
we need to renew those. And if we don't want to call it conversations about God, we at least need to have conversations about what, what's ultimate. What are we for? We had the conversation about continuity. Now let's have the conversation about purpose. What are we in the world for? What are we as individuals in the world for? What are we as a community in the world for? What are we as a people in the world for? Those conversations strike me as deeply urgent. And I suspect, I might be wrong here, but I suspect that many of us get very nervous about that conversation because we're not sure we have answers that are satisfying even to us. Why do you think we kind of avoid these conversations? I mean, I think that part of it is we don't want to exclude people. So when you start talking about purpose, if you right. don't agree with the purpose, you're out. Right. So, but are we afraid of having those conversations in Jewish organizations, among funders, among leaders? So, you know, it's, it's interesting, Andres, and I'm curious whether you would agree with this. One of the things that I've often thought about in my more kind of philosophical, theological hat is, you know, there was a time in the Jewish community when there emerged this conversation that got the label post-Holocaust theology. Post-Holocaust theology was not just a chronological label, but was also a label for a set of conversations. What do we mean when we say God in the face of mass genocide? You know, how can we talk about the God of the Bible in a world such as ours? And the conversation of post-Holocaust theology ended. And as I've gotten older, I've come to think that maybe the conversation ended not just because we moved on, but because the questions won. That is because more and more people in the community felt like They couldn't figure out what to say. And that's, I think, part of why you have so many passionate, spiritually passionate Jews who are passionate as Buddhists, because Buddhism provided a path that was a spirituality where they didn't have to talk about God. So I think part of the reason we're afraid is we're not sure we know what to say. Part of the reason is, I think, frankly, Jews haven't been conditioned to. I mean, I, I experience it all the time when I travel around the country and I try to get people to conversations about God. The biggest response I get is surprise. Oh, I didn't realize Jews did this. Right. So we've <laughs> almost conditioned the generation of Jews to think that we don't have those conversations. But then when they want to have the existential conversations about what matter most, my fear is that they feel like Judaism is not an address in which to have those conversations. Judaism right. is like a cultural weekend practice. But then when it comes to things that matter, well, I read Buddhist books or I, you know, read self-help books or I read Yuval Harari or whatever, you know, popular trendy book I might be reading. And I think that that's a tragedy. There is a way in which either Judaism has ways of addressing the existential questions that matter to us most as individuals and as communities, or it doesn't. I think it does. We just have to be willing to have those conversations and to train the kinds of leaders who are capable of facilitating those conversations. That's a tall yeah, order, I, but it is doable. Yeah, and I think I, I agree with, with your with the agnostics. I think that on the liberal side of things, you know, we're afraid of talking about God because you don't want to turn people off and the questioners, the people that may not have strong beliefs, they don't, they're agnostic, so you don't want to exclude them, so you don't talk about God. In Orthodox circle, I think that there's the same reticence. I mean, I think that in some case, Al-Aha tends to replace a deep conversations about meaning, about why are we here, why do we exist? Right. Well, I think actually one of the things that one might say, you know, you referred to the denominations and, you know, their kind of almost vestigial power um, as 19th century German phenomenon. I think that you could say in retrospect that each of the denominations found something to occupy the space that God had formerly held so that in the reform movement, let's say it was ethical monotheism, social justice in America. However, that was interpreted in the Orthodox world. It was the discourse of halakha as a sort of closed conversation in the conservative movement in Europe. It was history. 
In the conservative movement in America, I think there's been an enormous struggle to figure out what that replacement should be, which is one of the reasons why the movement has ideologically been flailing, right, is that it doesn't have a clear animating center a lot of the time. So, I, yes, I think part of the problem is that all of those replacements at a certain point are exposed as just that, right? They are inadequate as replacements. They are crucial as adjuncts and as consequences of a more fundamental conversation, but they can't take the place of the more fundamental conversation. Right. On some level, look, you know what? I'll just speak autobiographically for a moment. I went to Yeshiva Day School all my life. I remember as a sophomore in college, waking up one morning feeling kind of depressed, adrift, didn't know what I wanted to major in, didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. The usual kind of, you know, 20 year old angst. I remember thinking, you know, all of my years of learning have not at all given me the tools to ask the question, like, why am I here? How can it be that I spent all of my life in good Jewish schools, quote unquote, and I'm not equipped to have this conversation? What does Judaism have to say to me? And by the way, that's one of the things that helped launch me in my own career, which is that I, I, I kind of felt it's impossible that a tradition that is 3,000 years old does not have tools for this discussion. It is actually impossible. So let's start having them. And I think we're really at an inflection point in the Jewish community. Are we willing to rise to the occasion and have those conversations? I think for starters, we should have people like you saying what you're saying, which is let's have those conversations. Let's you know rein in our anxieties about having them and let's really have them. Let's talk yeah. Torah in the deepest sense. I have an, another autobiographical situation like that. In a moment of high perplexity, I went to my rabbi and I asked him about the book, The God of the Perplexed, right? From, the, from uh, Maimonides. And he said, oh, I haven't read it. I said, how come you're a rabbi? You haven't read the biggest book of Jewish philosophy. He says, well, he wrote it for the perplexed. I'm not perplexed. I don't have to read it. So, uh, <laughs> but, but I think that there is a fear of embracing our perplexities and say, you know, we don't have easy answers for them, but we have to, we have to right. go there. We have to. No, no. I was going to say one of the things that I, I, I often say, I imagine my students are tired of hearing me say it, is that I think religion at its best often gives us better language for our questions rather than pat answers. But you have to be right. willing to embrace that. Right. Yeah. You, there's a certain kind of what I call it in Hebrew, hachala, capaciousness. You need to have a certain capaciousness to cultivate a certain capaciousness to be able to embrace the questions. Let me put it this way. Recognizing that you don't know all the answers doesn't mean that you're not deriving meaning from the questions. Right. I think just right. engaging the questions is inherently an uplifting undertaking. At least for most right. people. I don't want to speak too globally, but I think, you know, I think for most people, just engaging that conversation, really for young adults, I think, seeing that the community is invested in those questions would be a major step forward in their relationship to the Jewish community. Yeah, and for young adults to realize that the community is not afraid of asking those questions, out of wrestling with those questions in, in a very open and honest and vulnerable way can be much more much more attractive, I think, than a fancy party or a program, you know, of some sort, like this deep engagement with, with your own human vulnerabilities can be very potent in that sense. But, well, but, just, but what I about you? Do you see it? Do you see, um, you know, you work with Jewish funders, you work with Jewish yeah. nonprofits. Do you see a burgeoning of a hunger for that discussion among that dimension of the community? In other words, are, are funders and nonprofits on board with the kind of revolution that you're seeking? That's an excellent question. I would start saying that the, the zeitgeist, you know, the American spirit 
is not very conducive to that. You know, Alexis de Tocqueville, you know, 150 years ago said it. He says, I haven't seen a country in the world that is less inclined to philosophical matters than the United States. We as a country and we as a community lionize the entrepreneur, the creative, the, the person who, who sort of popularizes something that, you know, has a great idea. We don't value socially somebody that is an, an intellectual and a spiritual seeker. We, we kind of value, but we don't really put him in the same pedestal yeah, right. as, as we put a Steve Jobs. And if you think about it, all the big seekers of sort of American Judaism were actually born in Europe, from Martin Buber to Heschel to, you know, even Mordechai Kaplan. Like, there, there, were, there were people, like, I don't know where Mordechai Kaplan was born, but it, it, their, right. their intellectual universe was one in which other things were valued. So on the one hand, I am seeing the need, but I am seeing that we're not equipped to answer that need. I mean, I'm seeing it in my own kids. My kids ask questions, you know, about, about that. Um, and the engagement paradigm that we offer is one in which we try to tone down those questions because we want to present a very low entry barrier to Jewish life. So we have that idea that if we ask those questions, people are going to be reticent. They're going to be afraid, so they don't want to come in. So this idea of lowering entry barriers but not asking difficult questions, I think it's failing us. Now, well, whether is there, an is there an appetite to change that? Yes. Is there the tools and the elements and the culture to do it? I'm less confident. Right. That's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, to use to use language that I, I often use with our staff at Hadar, you can do advanced Jewish thought for beginners. Right. As long as you Absolutely. trust people, as long as you Absolutely. trust people to have a heart and a mind that wants to engage, you don't need to talk. You know, I, I always say the first rule of adult education, never condescend to anyone. Never treat adults like they're seventh graders. Right. That is exactly the wrong model. First of all, people smell it a mile away. Right. And, and at the end of the day, they don't respect you and they and they know you're not respecting them. But I think your question is really powerful, which is so how do we cultivate a generation of leaders who will have those conversations, who are not afraid to have those conversations with their congregants, with their, you know, their students, their day school parents, their Hebrew school parents? How do we do that? Because I, I, I really think you're right on this. And the question is, who, who are our funders and our leaders, right? Our funders are entrepreneurs, and they're great. They're great at what they do, and that's why they, they became funders in the, in the first place. So the, the language in which they feel comfortable in is not a philosophical, theological language. It's a language of you know, entrepreneurship and a language of, of, of creating new products and new services, which is great. I'm not, you know, in a million years... I would be against that. What I'm saying is, how do we add the other dimension? And, and I think that one of the barriers is because funders and leaders don't feel comfortable, don't feel empowered to have those conversations, so they avoid it. And they go to a field in which they feel more comfortable, which is, let's think about engagement ideas, you know, which is something in which I can be totally comfortable and I don't need a pre-existing knowledge. So how do we change the culture? That's, that's a tricky one and probably starts with people like us sort of pushing, pushing the envelope a little bit and, and offering and proposing and, and asking for our leaders to, first of all, to learn more and to, Wait, and to yeah. confront these questions themselves, right? One of the ways that I might put that is it is always an illusion to think that better marketing can solve spiritual problems. Better marketing right. is never an answer to a genuine spiritual problem. 
deeper substance is the answer. I think always, always, you know, respecting people, giving them language in which to ask the questions that they're asking, and even giving them language to ask the questions that they've been groping towards finding a way to ask but don't yet have. That's where the real work is, I think. You know, at the risk of being slightly provocative, I think part of the problem is that rabbis and educational leaders in our community often live with a tremendous amount of fear. They're afraid of saying the wrong thing. They're afraid of donors turning on them. There's got to be a way for people whom the community respects to be able to say what's on their mind without feeling like their job is on the line all the time. I think that that's right. a very complex reality that we have to find our way through. Right. And I would say, you know, one of my most disappointing conversations in Jewish communal life was when I met with a very thoughtful and smart Jewish communal leader who's also a scholar. And, and I said, okay, let's talk about these things. Let's talk about how do we add more content and more substance and more depth to Jewish life. And he says, well, no, let's talk about how can I raise more money because I need to you know, make payroll this year. So I guess that one of the problems that we have is that many of our spiritual leaders are occupied you know, not thinking, writing, and teaching, they are mostly occupied maintaining organizations. So maybe what very concrete thing that funders can do is give those people the space to think, to teach, to write, to engage in those kind of things. I and mean, probably you have it in your own shop, but I don't know if the people that are running, for example, the big rabbinical seminaries, the HSC, the, the, the JTS, if they have that freedom, like their main concern is they're fundraisers. how do the they're fundraisers, right? So, right. but that's something that as funders, we can address. We can say, you know what? You do what you're good at. I'm going to fund you to just do the kind of things that you're best at. Think, write, teach, you know, discuss with other faith leaders. And we're going to take that burden off of you. Yeah, I mean, I think that would be obviously a, gr a great bracha. I mean, the truth is, this is maybe yeah. a very painful way to put it, but it's not like we're so awash in substantive Jewish thinkers that we've been talking about funding 80 people tomorrow. We're talking right. about really like helping those people who have both what to say and the language in which to say it to enable them to spend their time worrying about saying it rather than worrying about where they're going to be able to afford health insurance. I mean, I think, look, right. COVID is a good example. A lot of people who ought to be spending their time thinking about the spiritual, ethical, political implications of COVID are spending their time trying to keep organizations afloat. I think one of the things, and, and I'm here out of my depth, so I'm probably the least qualified person on this call to say this, but I, 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 as, as, as a rabbi, I'll say it. I think one of the anxieties that I hear from a lot of my colleagues who run nonprofits is that when the economy goes south, donors often feel like, oh, I need to withdraw and sort of be more protective of my funds. Whereas, in fact, when the economy goes south, that's when we need funders to step up more, not less. Right. right. I mean, that's exactly the moment. the moment when people's endowments are falling apart is precisely when organizations that we really value. Look, some organizations may go under and we'll say, OK, well, they, they, were, they didn't have a viable model. Maybe that's the case. But it can't be that at a moment that ought to be a moment of reckoning. We're all thinking about making payroll rather than wait. How does COVID change the Jewish community? How does it change America? And how does it change the Jewish community in America? Those are the conversations we should have the space to be having right now. Do you think that 
we could somehow, like it's not an either or proposition, right? Because on the one hand, we're talking of, okay, there's a structure of community that produces engagement frameworks. You know, the Hillel of the world, the Moshe houses, the birthrights, you know, those are engagement frameworks. And we're talking here about, not about framework, but about the content, the spirituality that goes inside those frameworks. Do you think we can marry the two? Do we think we can sort of imbue deep content in the things that we do already? So do I think we can? Yes. Do I think that the path is self-evident? Definitely not. Meaning we have trained a lot of professionals that engagement means fairly superficial stuff. Um, I just on my Facebook feed was following a conversation among a group of parents of college kids talking about, I, I hope I don't offend anyone here, but talking about how in their experience, Chabad engages kids with alcohol, right? It's not content. So do we have the ability to do it? Yes, but we would need to really reimagine what we mean by engagement. Engagement is not how many times is a person touched by a Jewish organization without any depth or substance attached to it. Engagement would have to mean how do we get people to learn Torah, talk about ideas, you know, all kinds of different ways, depending on our own ideological predilections, how we can talk about that. But I think that we're invested. I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. We're invested in a model of engagement that is kind of stubbornly superficial for the most part, with exceptions. And we have to both allow our engagement professionals to engage deeper, but also to equip them. Because let's be honest, many young adults who are put on college campuses to be engagement associates don't have the Jewish learning to be able to do what you're talking about. Right. right. I mean, this goes back to one of my one of my pet fascinations, which is, you know, we did this as a community, this major thing called birthright Israel. And I've often felt that we ought to do this thing called birthright Judaism, where every young adult <laughs> is basically promised 10 days in a Beit Midrash of their choice. And let's have like, let's have a bunch of them. Let's have the reform movement create one at HUC. Let's have the conservative movement that wants to create one at JTS or at, you know, the American Jewish University. Let's have Adar. Let's have Hartman. Let's have the Institute for Jewish Spirituality. Let's have birthright Judaism where every kid before they're 25 years old has experienced a substantive, grounded Judaic conversation. Is that going to make everyone a serious, passionate Jew? Of course not. But it's going to give them a better chance? Yes. And will it change the priorities of the Jewish community? I think undoubtedly so. What did birthright do? Like if you, let's push a little bit this analogy, right? What birthright did is it gave a common denominator to an entire generation of Jews. In other words, everybody had the same formative experience. It is a life cycle event. Everybody went to Israel. Everybody know what Israel is. Israel is no more, no more sort of an, and entelechia out there, uh, an abstract idea, is what they live through. So they can engage with it now differently because they, they've been there, they know, they share it with their friends. And an entire generation went through the same experience. Like we're talking about, I don't know, 600, 700,000 kids. Like everybody went through that. Now, if you were to give the same common language in terms of Judaism, you could facilitate a deeper engagement with that as well. I mean, I think... Yeah, and and going back to your to your to your to your Chabad point, uh, I mean it's a generalization, of course. Of uh, course. And and, and look, in, I, you know in, what? My kids are young, and when I was a Hillel rabbi, Chabad was not anywhere near as big as it is now. So I'm not speaking from experience. I'm just reporting on an impressionist right, right, conversation right, right. But, among but parents. The question, but the question is not how do you engagement. In other words, if you engage people by by having fun, I mean, and if you want to stay at the level of 
I just want to have social Judaism and have fun. In Jewish history, there never was a situation where 90% of the Jewish people were scholars, right? Like people were just going about their lives. But for those that want, our community should have a very seamless transition from a casual fun engagement, a low content engagement, whether it's through a Shabbat dinner, whether it's through a trip to Israel, to a more deeper engagement. That's what we also fail. We, we don't have that, that on-ramp to, to sort of deeper, deeper engagement. I would also say, by the way, in, in my experience working with, with young adults now for the last 25 years, that one of the challenges that the liberal denominations in particular have is this almost reflex impulse to take young kids who are interested in the substantive Jewish conversations and shunt them all off to rabbinical school, right? <laughs> if, you're, if you're a kid in a reform synagogue and you become passionate about Jewish observance or Jewish learning or Jewish ideas, you will be told very frequently. I mean, this is at least, I hear this all the time. Oh, have you thought about rabbinical school? I mean, which is on one level great and on another level deeply problematic because what we actually need are lay communities of people who are engaged in substantive conversation. I mean, my wife is an interesting example. My wife was a 16-year-old who started going to her reform synagogue for shul every week and immediately was asked, what about rabbinical school? And she said, I just like Torah. I don't want to be a rabbi. But, you know, she was sort of self-possessed enough to understand that about herself. But that's, I'm, I'm smiling because that's the story of my life. I went into rabbinical school, not because I wanted to be a rabbi, but because I wanted to study. And that was the only, the only option I had, the only opportunity I, I had to, to engage that. But the problem is that even if you went to rabbinical school, you're going to learn fundraising, right? You're not going to, or I'm, I'm exaggerating, of course, you're going to learn a lot of stuff, but, but the no, but focus true, of your training, the, the, what is going to be the focus of your training, right? No, but I think it's also true. I see this, I hear this from colleagues constantly. Rabbis serve synagogues where their own opportunity to study and grow are not all that valued, right? right. Well, what do you mean you have to go home and read? This is a job, <laughs> which I was like, yes, but yeah. reading is part of my job. Because you don't want to hear me give the same sermon 97 times a year. You want me to be having new ideas. You want me to be thinking. I mean, I've had rabbis tell me that when they come to Hadar for our rabbinic programs, the the chair of their board will say to them, oh, that's vacation time, isn't it? They say, no, I'm not on vacation. I'm not on vacation. Don't you understand? Everything I do here is rooted in the time I spend learning Torah. But if you went to a management course at a university, they wouldn't consider it as vacation. That's exactly it. Something that's exactly it. Job. Right. right. You know, that's where we get into that very difficult issue of how do you kind of break into the cycle of superficiality. Right. I wanted to open it up for folks in the audience that wanted to ask questions or participate in some way. And maybe by answering the question, we can actually continue our conversation. There is a question here from uh, folks in the Harold Greenspoon Foundation that they say that in their materials, in their books, I mean, they work with early childhood, right? But in their books, there is a trend towards engaging with important questions and with transcendental questions. So the question, I guess, for you is, is there an age to start this? Uh, or this is a lifelong journey? Is it as valid as it is for PJ Library, as it is for Birthright, and as it is for Wexner? Uh, you know, is there a critical age or is it a lifelong thing? I mean, how about if I say an answer to that question to me is yes. Is there a critical age? <laughs> yes. And is it a lifelong thing? Also, yes. Look, I think that the early childhood thing is crucial. However, 
early childhood that is not continued into childhood will eventually fade from memory. You can instill certain values, which we should instill. Look, I I think one of the challenges I would say, and I have, you know, great respect and and affection for for Harold and and for Diane and for the staff of the foundation, a lot of gratitude to them. But I think one of the interesting challenges is how does one bring together the books that are really transformative for kids with real Judaic content? Like, I think, for example, about how some of the most powerful books I've received from the PJ Library for my kids are books that are not explicitly Jewish, where I end up doing the work of giving them the Jewish language. I mean, at the risk of going off into La La Land, Karma Wilson's book, Bear Feels Sick, one of the most beautiful evocations of Bikur Cholim. I wouldn't have known about that book without PJ Library. And yet the only mention of Bikur Cholim is on the flap that PJ Library puts into the book because the book was not written as a Jewish book. And I wonder whether we ought to be demanding of Jewish publishers better and more substantive Judaically rich books. Who is the Jewish Karma Wilson? Right. So, you know, I think right. the Grinspoon Foundation has done extraordinary work. No, I don't know enough about what they do. You know, as the Grinspoon Foundation begins to think more and more about how to engage the parents of the children and not just use the parents as a vehicle for engaging the children, that I think can amplify but- the work of the Grinspoon Foundation you know, many, many fold. I'd like, I don't know as much about that. My, my colleague Ethan Tucker is on the foundation board, but I think, you know, that's the next big frontier, I think, right? But, but I think that one of the points that for me is important, and I'm taking, using PJ Library as an, as an example. When my younger son was six years old, you know, prompted by PJ Library book, he asked me, why is God not talking to me? <laughs> you know, mm. I learn in school that God talks to this and God talks to that and God appears to this. And why is he not talking to me? And it was just before, besides being an adorable moment, uh, you know, of parenthood, it's just I'm saying, well, that's a deep theological question. So in a way, if you can ignite those questions at an early age and then have a system that can keep answering those questions in more age-appropriate ways. I mean, at the end of the day, we're still asking the same question that my five-year-old asked, you know? hundred percent. People are just dying because of a virus, so where is God now, right? It's the same thing. Why is God not talking to me? But if, you're not, but if you didn't give yourself permission to ask those questions when you were young, I, you're probably not going to have even the, the, the language or the sensitivity to do it later. I think anyone who's worked with young children will tell you that young children are the most unabashedly philosophical people in the world. They ask the questions that matter because they haven't been taught yet that that, that's not what we talk about here. Some of the best questions I get asked that make me rethink stuff in my own work are from my own children who are the oldest of whom is 10. I think that's another interesting question. I don't know how PJ Library, for example, would answer this. And we're really just using PJ here I want as an example. But my son, who's 10, loves to spend time reading nonfiction on his own. I don't really know what the, the Jewish books to give him are besides texts. If I don't know that, I'm guessing a lot of other people out there don't know that either. You know, how do I get him to have more regularly used Jewish language for thinking about what his obligations in the world are, right? right. I want my and son to think about Bikur Cholim, visiting the sick, Nichum Avelim, comforting mourners. I don't know. I mean, yes, he learns about those things in school and he learns about them with me, but I don't know what books to give him to read. One of the questions that I got is, are you seeing any model for adult education 
that is a good model of how to engage with these issues. I mean, we talked about PJ Library for early childhood. No, what's happening with adults? Like, is there a model out there that could serve, if it's not doing it, could serve as a platform to have these conversations? You know, I think it, de it depends a little bit on how we define what these conversations are. I think there right. are programs that have worked incredibly hard to give adults more Judaic language and context for thinking about these questions. Melton, Wexner Heritage, you know, those kinds of programs. But those right. kind of programs, I, I don't know as much about Melton, but Wexner Heritage in many ways, it seems to me, program I've been honored to teach in, is in some ways preparatory for those conversations rather than about those conversations themselves. I think programs right. like that are really, really important. Maya in Boston, I don't even know if Maya is still running, but Maya, which yeah. ran out of Hebrew College um, under David Starr's leadership, you know, was a great example of preparing people to have some kind of elementary Jewish, I don't mean elementary in a pejorative way, but some kind of elemental is what I mean, kind of Jewish language for thinking about those questions. Look, I think that there are Pardes, Hadar, Hartman, in different ways, all do versions of this. But to be honest, the percentage of Jews that we together are reaching is minuscule compared to the conversations that we need to have. I think that some of us have created the models for those kinds of conversations. You know, right. I'm really proud of Hadar's executive seminar. I know Pardes runs a wonderful executive seminar. So what are we talking about between those two seminars, 250 people a year? We need massively amping up scale. So, so models like the Melton School that try to, do, that try to reach uh, critical mass, so models like Maya in Boston that sort of also trying to reach critical mass. It, it goes back to the birthright, to the Judaism birthright that you were talking about, but for adults too. So that's one dimension, right? Like we can do the birthright Judaism for young people, but then we can do it for folks over 40. But then the other question that I get from your words is that people go to Wexner, people go to Hartman, to Hadar, whatever they go, and they want more. Where's the on-ramp to that? Like, again, is it either rabbinical school or nothing? So maybe as a community, we need to give some platform for ongoing engagement for these folks. You know, this kind of brings us back full circle, because one of the things that I have been really struck by in my own work in the last few months is I declare my sins. I did not really realize how much hunger there is out there in the American Jewish community for organizations like Hadar to be providing opportunities for ongoing learning online. I totally right. missed that. So in March and April, I was giving a twice a week shiur in the book of Psalms with 175 people at every class and thinking to myself, who are these people? So one of the on-ramps is, first of all, these organizations can continue. I think it is clearly the case that once, God willing, you know, speedily may it be, this COVID nightmare is over, we're still going to go on doing a lot of the stuff that we're doing now. Obviously, we're going right. to bring back the centrality of human beings being with one another in person, in the flesh. But I think we've learned that there are things we can do. I mean, I'll tell you that one of the most moving letters I have gotten in the 14 years since we started Hadar was after our executive seminar online this year. I got a letter from a woman who writes to me that she is living in rural Vermont. She has very, very, very debilitating chronic fatigue syndrome. She has dreamed of being able to participate in a week-long learning intensive, and only COVID has made it possible for her because she could lie in bed all week and listen to Shirim. This I, it almost brought me to tears, and it's, I thought to myself, like, how have we not done this for her before? You know, and it's because we not wrongly, I think, want people to be together. We know that learning in person is different, and yet I think there's a lot that we can do. But about the on-ramp piece, another piece that I, th I think is important is that 
some of the people who end up at Hadar and Pardes for our adult learning are people who feel like they have graduated from what their synagogue offers. I hear this a lot from people that synagogue adult ed is almost all beginner level. But by the way, there again, that requires us to enable rabbis to keep advancing in their own learning, to be growing such that they can be teaching at a at an advanced level. I think it also means perfectly frankly, I don't mean to end on a bomb, but I think it means that we need to invest much more deeply existentially and financially in inreach and not just in outreach. It means that the people who already care enough to go to shul every Shabbat, but feel like they don't have anything stimulating them intellectually, know that the Jewish community is invested in their growth. I think people often don't feel that way. Right, they feel feel, feel penalized. You're already engaged, so we don't have to invest in you, right? Whereas... Right, exactly. But I, I, just on, this, on the same note, a, a friend of mine wrote on Facebook this week about how once he became a Chabad Chassid, he felt like Chabad was no longer as invested in educating him. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And you feel and, that as a conservative Jew, you feel that exactly, as... Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that, that, that we have it all... Look, you know, that was my, part of, you know, Ellie and, and Ellie Confer and Ethan Tucker and, and my model in Hadar was, what about all the people who are deeply in, but don't feel like they're being served? There are lots and lots of people talking, and they're right about the Jews who aren't. And they're, and they're not, and they're not mutually exclusive because, to, on the to, contrary, they ought to be mutually to bring a fructifying, right? They ought to be mutually right. beneficial. To end up in an optimistic note, you know, it's like we have the capacity, COVID and all, we we really have the capacity to do both as a philanthropic community, as a, as an ecosystem of organizations and leadership and people. We we can do this. We you know the Jewish people did it when it had much less resources and much less power and influence and comfort and security. So if if there is a moment for us to do this, to really invest at both levels, at the level of engagement on the one hand and at the level of deep Jewish learning and dealing with these existential questions at the same time and creating the structure for both, this is the time that we're fortunate enough to live in the time that if we use our resources wisely, we we can. I just want to say just one, one last note about arts as a vehicle for that. This is a question that came from one of our Canvas funders, our program for arts and culture. Arts can be an engagement tool for this, to confront these questions for those that are not comfortable with a, with a theological language. They could be comfortable with literature or with music or with things that bring them to the same place of, of thought and reflection. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, you know, this is the things you get, the privilege you get in working in the world of Jewish education. I had in Hadar's Project Zug a couple of years ago, a group of Chiloni Israeli artists in Chedera, okay? These are not the sort of mainstream Jerusalem, you know, German colony yeah. folks, decide that they wanted to take a class and the way they wanted to process the class was by painting each psalm. Wow. Um, and I found this to be incredibly moving, both in terms of pushing my own horizons, but also in terms of just remembering that not every Jew is a Beit Midrash Jew. And that's not just because we're not educated. That's not, that's not how all people process meaning. So by all means, like, you know, if one of the strands of birthright Judaism is an artistic or musical track, God bless them. Let's do it. But let's just make it substantive. One of the enormous privileges of my job is that I get to have this conversation with the smartest people around. And I just want to end up with, again, with thanks to youth and with um, and with an invitation to all of us to think about how we as a community of funders can invest more in deep 
transformational Jewish content and do the same miracles that we did in terms of engagement, do them also in terms of deep content. Thanks so much to Rabbi Shai Help. You can learn more about Adar, which offers a wide array of Jewish learning experiences at adar.org. That is H-A-D-A-R dot O-R-G. And thank you for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback, both about this particular podcast, but in general, if you have guest ideas, breaking philanthropic news, whatever you want to send our way. Please write us to communications at jfunders.org. Keep up with the work of the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter at jfunders. You can follow me on Twitter at Spokoini. I leave you with a quote from Maimonides that said, truth does not become more true by virtue of the fact that the entire world agrees with it, nor less so even if the whole world disagrees with it. So seek truth, follow it, Keep giving and join us next time on What Gives.